CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. Great to have all of you with us again for another edition of Political Rewind. Uh, early voting continues in Georgia, as it does in many states across the country. Um, as we like to do every day, we just kind of recap where we stand on uh, voting. We have now had, it between absentee ballots and early in-person voting, 2,120,000, almost 125,000 people cast their Ballots here, 1.3 million of them have been cast in person. And uh, so far, about 818,000 have been accepted, have, in other words, have gotten to their county election offices and have been uh, accounted. There's still some 729,000 absentee ballots that are outstanding. And uh, election officials are urging people to get those turned in as quickly as possible. Um, so one of the things I want to talk about as we start, I'll introduce the panel first, but um, the AJC uh, published a really interesting piece, I thought, this morning on one of the reasons that we are seeing such uh, turnout and such enthusiasm for voting in the 2020 race. And um, I'll get to that after I introduce first Kevin Riley. He's the boss, the editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, joins me on the Thursday shows, and I'm glad to have you here again with us today. Kevin, how are you doing? It's good to be with you, Bill. Thanks again, as always, for having me. And I want you to know something, and I want the listeners to know something. I've always accepted that if I don't follow the rules on this show, you can mute my mic. So let's keep that in mind today as we head into the debate. (laughs) Thank you very much. Uh, Kevin, you have an event at the AJC coming up tonight that I I do think it's worth uh, giving uh, our listeners an opportunity to learn just a little bit about. Yeah, at 5 o'clock tonight, and people can register for this event, this virtual event at our website, AJC.com, we're going to have a community conversation, as we call them, uh, and you can view it on Facebook or YouTube. And the idea is to, the title of the event is Making Your Vote Count. And we're going to have a conversation with Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. I mean, people will also get a chance to see him demonstrate the uh, vote, new voting machines, and then uh, they'll get to hear from some of our expert reporters, who many of your listeners know from this show, about uh, what the big races are and um, what the big issues are. It'll be interesting to hear how Raffensperger uh, explains that, that they have now solved the technical problems that slowed early voting down. He believes that they've cleared those up and lines are shorter but when we get to the last week of early voting, and especially the last day on October 30th, and then Election Day itself on November 3rd, we can only hope that the technical problems that slowed things down so much in the first week or so have been corrected. And I'm sure he'll address that on the show. Uh, we're also joined today by uh, one of Political Rewind's favorites, Dr. Alan Abramowitz, political science professor at Emory University, and one of the um, great modelers of uh, elections and uh, how he sees them playing out using a variety of factors. We're going to talk about your latest modeling uh, on the show today, Alan. In the meantime, thanks for being here. Sure, glad to be with you. 
And we are also, we're joined for the first time, and I'm glad to have her with us, by uh, Mariella Romero. She is with Univision in the, your title, Mariella, is Community Imp, Regional Community Empowerment Director for Univision in Atlanta, Philadelphia, and Raleigh. Um, but we should also point out that you anchor, write, and produce the new, a news magazine for Univision that's seen in all of those markets. You are a Emmy Award winner. At one point it, early in your career, you've worked at CNN, but at one point you actually did some work at Georgia Public Broadcasting, right? Correct. As soon as I arrived here uh, in 1996, I was hired by Georgia Public Broadcasting in 1997 uh, to work on a show called Salsa, and it was an educational show for children to learn Spanish. And it was to tell you the truth, the best job I ever had in my life. <laughs> I, re- I remember the show, and it was fascinating to see that you had been a part of it. You also have a really interesting upbringing. You, you were born in uh, Venezuela, Caracas, but then your father was a diplomat, right? And so you grew up in France, in Mexico, in Argentina. So you are a worldly, you've been a worldly person from a very young age. Correct, correct. Thank you for <laughs> saying that. And um, yes, my father is a diplomat, an ambassador, and I grew up in different countries. My first, uh, second language was French. Uh, and, you know, now uh, the third language is English. And I'm, you know, I'm sorry that I have such a thick accent. <laughs> I don't know if your viewers are going <laughs> to like <You're>... accent. <laughs> You're, 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 you're doing just fine, and I'm really glad you're with us. Um, Alan Abramowitz, here's what I was going to point out from the AJC this morning. Uh, Mark Nisi and Jennifer Pebbles, two of Kevin Riley's reporters, uh, put up this story this morning. Um, their contention is that one of the reasons Georgia is in play in this election is that since 2016 a younger, more racially diverse electorate has registered to vote. More than one million new registrations uh, have been processed since the 2016 election. There's now 7.6 million registered voters in uh, Georgia, and um, many of them, 30-some percent of them, according to the reporting, are uh, uh, young people, I think, uh, in their their, uh, under 30 um, and, and so it's not surprising under 35, uh, I should have said, um, so the secretary of state, Brad Raffensperger is quoted in the piece as saying the continued growth of Georgia's registered voting population is a testament to the simple and easy registration op- options to, uh, register. Uh, it, and it's interesting because as the registrations grow, the possibility of a lot of those people being Democrats uh, really is something worth considering. Yes, Alan? Absolutely. Um, This is a continuation, actually, of a trend that's been going on here in Georgia for some time. It didn't just start in 2016, but in the last four years, I think we've seen it accelerate. And uh, if you look at the demographic makeup of the Georgia electorate overall, it's certainly becoming increasingly diverse uh, and that's especially true in Metro Atlanta. Most of this growth has occurred in Metro Atlanta. Uh, and uh, that change in the demographic makeup of the 
electorate was one of the keys to the Democrats uh, coming as close as they did in the 2018 gubernatorial election and also flipping uh, one U.S. House district in 2018 and coming very close to uh, also taking another House district. So we'll be watching very closely to see how those trends play out in the 2018 presidential, Senate, and congressional elections here. Um, Kevin, uh, about 53% of the 1 million plus new registrants are uh, identify as white, 30% as black, um, and then about 4% uh, named, said they were Hispanic, 9% of those uh, who registered didn't record any uh, race what's at all. Um, so we continue to have a preponderance of white voters registering uh, in the state, but uh, uh, clearly the African-American vote in the election uh, upcoming is going to be very important. Yeah, I, I agree with you, Bill. I mean, we see these changes. We see the demographics moving, uh, and they're not they're not changing the direction in which they've been moving for a long time. But I also think it points out, um, as we look at these numbers, that this is why everyone's so focused on turning out their voters because it's it's getting so close. It's getting uh, the, the the slices of the pie are changing. The margins of victory are so tight that it really comes down to getting your folks out. Uh, Mariella, why don't we get you in here? Because it is interesting that 4% of the new registrants are uh, consider themselves Hispanic because you self-identify in these things. And, and there's been for a long time questions about the fact that uh, the Hispanic community has, it, as it grows in great numbers, continues to lag behind in terms of registrations. Talk to us a little about that. Yes, and, and you know, one, one thing that I would like to point out is that so far, almost 40% of Latinos that have already voted in this period of every voting did not vote in 2016. So this is an, uh, you know, an indication that a lot of Latinos are pushed to uh, being hurt in this election. Um, and, and another thing that is happening is the growth of the Latino community in, in Gwinnett County, for example, um, in, you know, the Latino community in Gwinnett has been affected uh, due to the um, immigration laws that have been, uh, you know, uh, affected in, the, in those suburbs. And just not the federal ones, but also the Georgia laws that have been so harsh with the undocumented community. Um, and in Gwinnett, those laws have been in effect very, very, with a lot of uh, preponderance. So that, I believe, is driving uh, a lot of Latinos to, to be heard because of, you know, the, the laws regarding DACA, you know, the future of DACA, the future of immigration reform is part of uh, the concern of that community. Also, I believe the Affordable Care Act and the pandemic are driving Latinos to the poll because of also how much um, the Latino community has, has been affected by the pandemic. We, ha we are the largest minority to, uh, you know, to be affected by the pandemic, and also people are concerned about the future of healthcare in this country. And, and another thing that people need to um, understand is that Latinos in Georgia 
are mostly first or second generation immigrants. I am a first generation immigrant. And um, they, you know, that makes us very sensitive to the programs that the Trump administration is about to dismantle. Um, and, you know, uh, people from El Salvador, people from Nicaragua, people from Mexico are affected by that as well as the future of DACA. So I believe that, uh, you know, 250 Latinos are registered to vote and um, the presidential election in Georgia, the difference between both candidates was won by 200,000 votes. So the Latino community can make an impact if they show uh, in, in the numbers that people are asking them to show. So yeah, far, only uh, 2% of the early and absentee vote are, Latin, are Hispanic or Latino. Go ahead, Alan. Well, I was going to say, first of all, I think that that 4% number is probably an underestimate of the actual size of the, of the Latino uh, a share of the electorate in Georgia because people don't necessarily check that box. We're, we're, we're not sure what that 9% uh, uh, consists of nine percent uh, who don't uh, check any any of the boxes. So that's a voluntary thing. Obviously, people are not required to do it. Mm -hmm. um, and I suspect that um, among that nine percent, there are uh, probably a good number of Latinos. There probably are a good number of Asian Americans. So uh, we're not we're not getting a really accurate read on the size of this growing minority population there. Um, I think we'll probably get a better read on that from the exit polls. Uh, when, when we see them, just to see how, how large that that group is. But uh, as, I, as I was mentioning, there's a, there's a large and growing Asian uh, uh, American voting population in Georgia as well. Uh, and along with Latinos, that is contributing to the shift uh, in the Atlanta suburbs, because that's where a lot of these voters uh, are, are living and registering to vote. Um, the other thing that's happening, though, is there's a shift over time in the relative size of the college and non-college educated population. Um, and so if we look at, like, white voters, um, the share of white voters who are in that non-college group has been going down over time. The share who are in the college-educated group has been growing over time. So every four years, what we're seeing is a growing share of the electorate consists of either white college graduates or non-white voters, and the share of non-college white voters goes down. That's the group, those non-college white voters, that Donald Trump, which is still a very large group, but I don't want to be uh, uh, misleading here, um, but that is the group that, that Donald Trump does best with. Uh, and that's the group that he needs to turn out in big numbers for him if he's going to hold on to Georgia and, and some of these other swing states. In a couple of minutes, I want to get in a little bit deeper into how they are, those that group and others are reflected in the New York Times-Siena poll of, of Georgia voters. Mm -hmm. uh, but before I do that, a couple of things. Uh, Kevin, all three of you, really, you know, until we have actual voting results, until we have exit polls, uh, we are, you know, stuck reading tea leaves about what we're seeing in terms of early voting, whether it's in person or by mail. And... Um, I, I'm interested in the fact that as of yesterday, uh, when you break down the demographics of uh, the people who've already cast ballots, 56.5% uh, of the ballots already uh, registered are 
uh, among are, are from white voters. 29%, oh, just about 30% are black voters, 2% Hispanic, 2.3% Asian. Um, well, Alan, you've got the ball. Let me keep it in your court for just a minute. Uh, if, if, if we're really at only 30% black voters, if that percentage were to play out, that's a disappointment to Democrats in this state. 30% may reflect basically the percentage of blacks in Georgia, but a higher percentage is going to be needed to put Democrats across the finish line, yes? Uh, well, I'm not sure about that. I, th- I think that um, 30% is kind of what where I've been seeing uh, the expectations are for the most part. Um, so a lot depends on what share of the what the Latino and Asian share of the electorate is, first of all, uh, and, and how those groups vote. But, but also um, a key thing to look at here is what share of the white vote is, is Joe Biden going to get? What share of the white vote are the Democratic Senate candidates going to get? Uh, in 2016, Hillary Clinton only got about 21 or 22 percent of the white vote in Georgia. Uh, in 2018, uh, I believe Stacey Abrams got about 25 percent of the white vote in Georgia. Uh, and now in some of the recent polling, we're seeing a range of numbers, of course, but on average, I'd say uh, Biden and uh, uh, Ossoff have been getting somewhere around 27 or 28 percent of the white vote. Um, so that's, that's getting close to the level where if you have uh, 30, if African-Americans are 30 percent of the electorate, if Latinos and Asian Americans and other non-white voting groups are another seven or eight percent of the electorate, uh, and if, uh, if, if a Democrat can get close to 30% of the white vote, that could be enough, I think, to put them over the top. Okay, but here's what's yeah, interesting. And Kevin and Mariella, you should go ahead, Kevin. Well, I also, I would also add, too, I mean, again, all these things are moving around a little bit, but, but the general consensus, I think, Alan, right, is that uh, black voters are much more prone to vote on election day at the polls than necessarily vote in advance or by mail. And so we could, that that percentage that you mentioned, Bill, could sort of naturally just be a little bit lower given that tendency. It, it um, could Mariella, be. Mariella, uh, what's, go ahead. Well, um, I would say that during the 2018 midterm, we should look at uh, the number of Latinos that turn out to vote because 56% of them uh, turn out, and that represented a higher rate than any other group in the state. And also, they outperformed the Latino vote in, in Arizona and in Florida. So I think the story of Latinos in Georgia would be something that uh, more people are going to be interested in to look at, because I, I believe that uh, organizations that are working to uh, civically educate the Latino population are doing a good job. And, and that is why we're seeing more Latinos uh, turning out in the state of Georgia than we have seen in the past. And I have been with Univision for 10 years, and one of our, uh, you know, socially corporate responsibility platforms is to educate our viewers um, in, in how to become citizens, how to register to vote, etc. And I will tell you that for all of the campaigns that we have on health, on financial literacy, 
on education, civic engagement has always been the most difficult to to um, to activate and to have a large a large number of people interested in. But I think uh, things are changing, and more and more Latinos, young Latinos that are being educated in our public schools are learning about the electoral process and with the help of organizations like the Georgia Association of Latino Elected Officials, the Latino Community Fund, et cetera, they have done a good job at educating those young uh, Latinos and, and a lot of women also are showing up to vote. Yeah, I mean, to, to some extent, I think what you're seeing is just sort of a natural process that occurs uh, when a group has been in uh, the United States for some time and you start to see a second generation and then a third generation, uh, and the second and third generation have grown up mainly in this country. Um, they've grown up with English as their first language in, some, in many cases. Um, and normally what you see, not just with Latinos, but with many previous immigrant groups, is that you start to see an, uh, this uh, dramatic increase in part in civic participation and including voting uh, when you get to that second and third generation. So I think that uh, to some extent that's uh, that's what's happening right now with a lot a lot of the uh, Latino community in in um, in Georgia and with the Asian American community in Georgia as well. Yeah, keep and that in mind. Too. I wanted to say something. They're running for mm -hmm. office too. They're not just voting. We're starting to see them show up. Uh, as candidates and actually getting getting elected to office, uh, particularly in the the state legislature, is a, a growing uh, minority share of the uh, of, of the state legislature. Absolutely, uh, Kevin. Keeping all that in mind, uh, Alan. Um, so that that time, uh, the latest uh, New York Times thing that I that I think is you know part of the polling we're getting into says that uh, Biden has the support of 28% of white voters. Our poll of about a month ago at the AJC had it at 29%. Oh, by the way, look for another poll from us soon. Is that the right number? Um, if Is that the number for a Democrat to win in Georgia, or does it have to be bigger than that 28, 29% of the white vote when you consider you know, the black vote, we consider the Latino vote? What, what, you know, from a political scientist's point of view, is are the Republicans in a good spot or are the Democrats in a good spot, given that 28, 29 percent of white voters? I would say that 28, 29 percent is right on the cusp, you know, I mean, and that's what we're seeing in these polls. We're seeing, I mean, given, given the current makeup of the Georgia electorate, you know, and, and, and you know, this is something that's changing over time. So in you know, four years from now, it's going to be different. Um, four years ago, four years earlier, it, it was, you know, Democrats would have needed a larger share of the white vote. Four years from now, they'll need a somewhat smaller share of the white vote. But right now, at the point that we're at now, I would say that 28 to 29, 30 percent is probably right about um, the share of the white vote that a Democrat would need to win in a statewide election in Georgia, you know, to, to, um, to, to have a chance of winning. Um, and that, of course, this is all without taking into account the potential in the Senate elections of a runoff election, because it's quite possible that neither the Democratic nor the Republican candidate will hit 50 percent of the vote. Uh, and it's certainly in the jungle primary race, but even in the other Senate race. And we may very well be looking at one, if not two, runoff elections in January, which could potentially determine which party controls the Senate. 
All right, before we get to a break, which I've got to take fairly soon, I do want to I, I do want to uh, throw a different factor into this mix in terms of whether 28 percent of the white vote is enough in Georgia for uh, uh, Joe Biden to win the state. We recall that no Democrat has won Georgia in the presidential level since 1992 when Bill Clinton did, and he didn't win re-election in Georgia in 1996. Um but but the but the factor that also comes into play here that I think is worth talking about, Mariella, I'm going to give you the first crack at this, is we're seeing there are is a, there is a gender gap in terms of Hispanic voters, um, and, and the New York Times again uh, had a piece on this today, pointing out that while uh, by much larger percentages. Uh, Latino Hispanic women are supporting Democratic candidates, and I assume that's probably true in Georgia. Um, That is not the same with the men in their households. They are looking more at Republican candidates. Now, a number of analysts have have really kind of taken this down to its most reductive level, so I'm going to let you play with this, and suggested that there's a macho factor involved with this. Take all of that and tell me what you think. Yeah, and what I'm going to say is all my opinion. <laughs> this is not based on any research. <laughs> yeah. This is my cultural yeah. background. <laughs> so I'm going to talk about it uh, because I believe um, there is a factor that is true. Is it the machismo that is prevalent in, in Latin America? And in our the history of, all, of our, all of our countries, even though we are, you know, different in the history of Argentina, they're different from the history of Mexico and Venezuela and Colombia. But we, we share some uh, cultural figures. And, um, and, and, and you know, if, if you grew up in Latin America, you will see that the strongman figure is very, very present in our uh Conscious and in our collective conscious. So you will see that the appeal, for example, someone like Chavez, Hugo Chavez, um, you know, when, when Donald Trump started his campaign, I started to tell to my colleagues, you know, certain characteristics of Donald Trump are very similar to Hugo Chavez. The, the way he communicates, the charisma, even though they are both in, in the political spectrum in different, in the opposite side, their style is very similar. And that resonates with a lot of men who grew up in Latin America. They like that strong figure. Uh, you know, every time I go to uh, Latin America and I see the billboards for ads, etc., I am appalled <laughs> the, the way that they portray women, for example, and it is because I've been living abroad for such a long time. So uh, the way that women are portrayed in uh, publicity and ads will not be acceptable in the United States. And that is because the worldview of Latin America caters more to men. And, of course, I'm talking in generalities. Uh, you know, some Latin American countries have uh, different points of view and, and, and you know, so more are more progressive than others. But throughout our history, we have seen that figure of, of the male dominant and even some women like that. So um, I'm not surprised that we see a lot of Latinos supporting uh, President Trump because of that image of strength. All right. I- 
I want to, Alan, I want to add one layer and then give you the chance before we have to get to a break. Uh, the gap also exists in among black voters, black women. You know, the Biden campaign even has a commercial on the air with black men here in, sitting in a barbershop. It's being aired. It's been aired. I don't know if it's on currently in a barbershop talking about how uh, their mamas are voting for Joe Biden. Gee, maybe we ought to think about it as well. So there's a there's a gender gap in terms of black men and women uh, in the election as well. Yes. Yes, there is. Um, there's a gender gap among white voters, among black voters, among Latino voters, probably among Asian voters as well. Um, there's something about Donald Trump, uh, and actually this even precedes Donald Trump, but I guess it's probably uh, at somewhat larger. It seems to be so, a somewhat larger divide now with Trump, uh, where he, uh, his style uh, uh, and approach uh, uh, seems to appeal uh, um, more to men than to women. Uh, or looking at it the other way around, you could say his uh, style repels women more than it repels men. Um, so I, I do like the idea, though, of comparing Donald Trump to Hugo Chavez, and I think that um, he would probably find <laughs> quite an interesting comparison. But I understand where you're coming from, and I think that that's, that's correct. Uh, so the, the, the question is, uh, I think, uh, heading into this election, whether uh, the tendency of Trump's approach and style of governing to repel women, uh, particularly college-educated women, uh, is uh, uh, going to uh, be offset by his appeal to uh, certain groups of male voters, particularly less educated uh, male voters. And, and uh Looking at the polling data, I think right now it, it, what we, we're seeing is that the gender gap is, is, is not working in his favor, um, that, um, yeah, I, that his poor showing among women is, is really what is uh, one of the biggest factors contributing to the kinds of polling deficits that, that we're seeing nationally and in many of the swing states. Yes. Okay. There is a gender gap across all lines with Donald mm-hmm. Trump. I get that. But if he wants to prevail in Georgia and doesn't have that 28 percent of the white vote, he if he gets toward that and doesn't get over it, it's where the gender gap matters in terms of having black men come out to the polls and, and vote for Hispanic men, too. All right. Let's do this. Let's get to our first break of the show. We'll come back with a lot more to talk about on Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. AJC's Kevin Riley, uh, Professor Alan Abramowitz from Emory University, and Mariella Romero from Univision joined me today. Mariella, what's the name of your uh, the show that you do for Univision? It's called Conexión Fin de Semana. It airs Saturdays and Sundays at 6 p.m. and 11 p.m. News conversation style show? It is a news magazine, and uh, the first two blogs are dedicated to current issues, and then the, lo- the last two blocks, mostly we talk about community issues and how to solve some problems that we're seeing. So it is a, 
a news magazine uh, with some uh, public affairs component. Oh, terrific, terrific. And, and again, we're glad to have you here for your first appearance on Political Rewind. All right, Kevin Riley, we've talked about the, around this New York Times poll enough. We'll just dip into it a little bit at this point because we've talked a lot about the kind of demographics that the poll really, that underlie the numbers in this poll. So uh, much like your last poll, Kevin, uh, the New York Times puts Biden and Trump in a dead heat, 45% each uh, in the state, just the top lines at this point. Um, they In Senate race number one, the David Perdue-John Ossoff race, they have both of them at 43%, another dead heat. That's a 4% uh, drop for Purdue over their last poll. And, uh, and so they see that race as a push right now. And in Senate race number two, uh, which which we all know is almost, almost certainly going to be uh, uh, headed for a runoff. Raphael Warnock, the Democrat, is at 32 percent. Leffler, 23. Doug Collins at 17. Um, but what's also interesting about that, and I'm just going to throw all this out and then let you all comment on whatever aspect of you want it to, the, the New York Times poll also did a fantasy matchup uh, in a runoff. Now, uh, Abramowitz is the expert on this kind of thing, but fantasy matchups, from my point of view, are, are fun, but pretty fairly meaningless until they actually become real. Nevertheless, uh, according to their matchups, if Warnock is in the runoff with Leffler or Collins, he beats both of them 45% to 41%. Kevin, pick up on whatever of those uh, pieces of data you want to. Well, I think like a lot of voters, you know, and you've got my head spinning now, Bill, because uh, mm-hmm. where, where to begin with I know, this? I realize. Um, I know. I, I, I know come- radio is a lousy place to talk <laughs> numbers. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. um, but, but I do think um, it's it's uh, let's just focus on the Senate races. I mean, I don't think anyone really expected uh, early on that Ossoff would have Purdue in this position. And you really have to wonder about what will happen and whether that'll just break. And I think Alan will will confirm this based on his work, right? The the in his studies of numbers, I I think they that race breaks however the presidential race breaks in Georgia, because someone's gonna, you know, gonna come out ahead there. Um, because we we're seeing that more and more. But it is it is remarkable. You would have expected Purdue to have every advantage. That other Senate race was always going to be a mess, going to be a runoff, um, go on forever, and uh, it's that all that we thought would happen is coming true. So, Alan, I, I, do you think that that Ossoff Purdue breaks with the presidential race as well? Yes. Um, what we've been seeing over time and uh, across the whole country is a, a growing consistency between presidential results and Senate and House results, where uh, voters are voting a straight party ticket. Um, and so if Biden carries the state of Georgia, I think Ossoff has a very good chance of, of winning the Senate race. Uh, if Trump carries Georgia, then I think Purdue will probably win the Senate race. Although it's also possible that the Senate race will go to a runoff if the margin in the presidential race is, is also, you know, is very close. Um, you know, I think in, 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 in the um, jungle primary, what's interesting is that um, you've really got three high-profile candidates there, right? You've, you've got Warnock on the Democratic side, and you've got Leffler and Collins on the Republican side. But Leffler and Collins are basically running against each other. 
Um, and so when voters are turning on their television sets, what they're seeing right now is a lot of attack ads in which Leffler is attacking Collins and Collins is attacking Leffler. And Warnock is able to kind of ride above the fray. Nobody's really attacking Warnock. Um, so he gets to uh, uh, put out a, it's a really very positive message talking about, and he does criticize the Republicans a bit, but most of his messaging is very positive. It's about his background, his life story, and what he would do uh, and some of his policies that he supports. Um, and he is um, not getting much criticism right now because the Republicans are too busy going after each other. That's going to put him, I think, in a pretty strong position going into a runoff. Uh, now, of course, once we get into that runoff after November 3rd, then obviously whoever comes out ahead on the Republican side, whether it's Leffler or Collins, is going to be training their messaging on Warnock, and we're going to hear a lot more negative attacks on him. But right now, he's had this period of several months uh, uh, in which now he's, you know, he's raised a lot of money, he's got a lot of ads on TV, and he's able to uh, uh, you know, communicate his message to the electorate without much in the way of, uh, of, of any pushback, uh, either from, from any other Democrat, because there are no other Democrats who have the resources to get on the air, uh, or, or even from the Republicans who are attacking each other. It's interesting that the Warnock campaign is telling uh, the reporters who follow them that they really think there is some chance that there is an opportunity to win this thing without a runoff. It seems highly unlikely, uh, but uh, they believe that they can mount a strategy that will be aggressive enough uh, to continue building his lead, whether he can really get to 50% plus one is somewhat questionable. Mariella, uh, um, go back to Senate race number one for a minute, Purdue and Ossoff. The New York Times poll, uh, it, they pointed out in, in releasing their poll that they were in the field um, uh, uh, after David Perdue uh, seemed to be intentionally mangling Kamala Harris's name uh, mocking her name at that event down in Macon, and they found it didn't have any impact at all, at least in what their numbers showed. Um, but I can't help but wonder that when you come out of a community like you do, where sometimes uh, uh, people like me have difficulties with pronunciations, whether or not that stings in a way that people don't forget. Well, uh, you know, I... I'm very, very surprised about this race because I have interviewed both uh, Senator Perdue and John Ossoff. And Senator Perdue is very eloquent, very charismatic. He's more sophisticated than uh, people know. And he's, uh, you know, he has lived abroad and he has uh, a, a worldview that is very different from what uh, he portrays as a politician. He knows a lot. Uh, more, you know, and I was surprised that he did that because um, he has lived in other countries. He has, he has lived in Argentina, so he knows better than that. And I think um, a lot of people were turned off by that, and I'm surprising that it is surprising to me that John Alcock, uh is making strides because when you compare them both, in terms of how they communicate with with an audience, uh, David Perdue is far superior. So I think doing something like that, he showed that he is willing to go very low, and many uh, voters might be turned off by some, you know, pulling something like that. 
So let me throw in a, 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 an alternate view on, on that. I, I think you're right. Purdue has always shown himself to be quite polished, corporate executive, Fortune 500 uh, companies, all that sort of thing. But Kevin Riley, watching the debate, uh, I thought that John Ossoff gave as well as he got, in fact, get better. Uh, it ended up looking very polished, ended up taking the fight to Purdue, and uh, especially there were moments when uh, Purdue was caught reading from notes. And I saw very quickly picked up on that, said, Senator, stop reading from your notes. Answer. So I got a different sense of Ossoff uh, than I'd had in the past. I got a sense of a guy who really can, has learned maybe about the art of campaigning and, and really was operating on a, on a level where he had some equity with David Perdue. Yeah, Bill, I think that you make a great point there. Uh, it's worth remembering that no matter what people think of John Ossoff, he's now been in two really rough-and-tumble campaigns. And um, the first campaign uh, where Purdue ran, I mean, you know, a campaign's a campaign. It's demanding. But but I just think that uh, it's it's possible that uh, John Ossoff has developed some, some more of a, a killer instinct and a sense of moment like that than David Purdue has had to. Ellen, let me yeah. give you a quick last word before we have to take a break. I I agree with that. I think the experience of going through that 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 very competitive house race and and, and runoff uh, has has helped him improve his his approach and performance. Uh, but I also think that you know in some ways he's been able to put Purdue on the defensive uh, because Purdue finds himself in a position where he kind of has to defend uh, some pretty unpopular policies uh, and a, and a relatively unpopular incumbent president who's tied himself to that president as just about every Senate Republican has. And now, you know, he has to, he has to defend Donald Trump's record uh, on the pandemic, on health care. And these are things that, uh, you know, that I think provide an opening, at least for for uh, for Ossoff, uh, to to take advantage of. That's a great point. Uh, he, it, Purdue has tried to pull himself away from Trump in this, this stage of the race in many ways, like so many Senate Republican incumbents have who are up for re-election. Uh, but he's haunted by the past ways in which he has stood uh, shoulder to shoulder with the president. Um, we got to take a break. When we come back, let's talk about the debate tonight and more on Political Rewind. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. So just about everyone knows the final presidential debate between Donald Trump and Joe Biden takes place tonight. Tomorrow on Political Rewind, Michael Thurman, Sam Olins, Karen Owen will be here to break down uh, what they saw uh, happen. Uh, and we'll also talk a lot more about Georgia politics as well, because I know that's an area that you really want to hear on this show is what's happening in Georgia. All right, let's talk for a few minutes about what we think should be happening tonight. Alan, before we talk specifically about the debate, though, let's talk about the landscape as we go into it. You put out an October forecast of uh, electoral votes and how you see the election breaking down right now, and you are virtually lockstep with 538 on this. Right. You showed right now 
Biden with 344 electoral votes, Trump with 194, and you say that Biden has a probability of 86% to win uh, the race. Uh, we don't have a lot of time, but just quickly tell us what you put into your model. Well, my model is a lot simpler than the 538 model. You know, what 538 is doing is compiling state polls and aggregating them and, and, and putting them together to come up with a forecast of how the electoral vote will come out, which is a very reasonable thing to do. Uh, but it's, it's, it's very uh, uh, time-consuming. It's, it's, it's very data-intensive. My model is very simple. I'm predicting the presidential vote in the Electoral College based on the incumbent president's approval rating. And what I've found is over time, there's a very, very strong relationship between the public assessment of the job the incumbent president is doing and how they vote. Uh, and it, this is particularly true when you get to the late stages of the campaign. So by October, if you look at the correlation between the approval rating and the electoral vote for the incumbent, it's very, very strong. And right now, Donald Trump is in a situation where his approval rating is underwater, as it has been throughout almost his entire presidency. His approval rating in the latest Gallup poll, for example, is at 43%, I believe. Uh, his disapproval is yep. at 55%. Yes. So 43 versus 55, that's a negative 12. Uh, and that's the number that I plug into my model. And when you plug in negative 12 in October, you get the prediction that I came up with. And we should point out a lot of people pay attention to Abramowitz when he models these races. Uh, Kevin, if what Alan is saying is correct, and, you know, uh, if, every, if this is based on approval ratings, then almost nothing President Trump can do tonight to maybe erase the impression that people had after the first debate is going to move his approval numbers one way or the other because they've been at the same place no matter what he does for virtually four years. So... I think Alan's pointing a fairly pessimistic picture of the president having much ability to move the needle tonight in terms of picking up states. Well, well, let's bring it back to Georgia for a second. So we've got a dead heat in Georgia if we're to believe the polls. I think to debate, tonight's debate has nothing but upside for the president because every story tomorrow, every preview story is about, you know, is he going to do the, do what he did last time? Is he get, And so no matter what he does, all the, the, the coverage will be about what he did or didn't do. You've got this crazy Hunter Biden story sitting out there, which we know is going to be his line of attack. And then Joe Biden is left with, well, uh, should he take that away from him and mention it first or find himself on the defensive? So I, I, I kind of think the president can't lose tonight. And even if he just moved things, moves things a couple points, it could it could matter an awful lot in Georgia. So I think nothing but downside for Biden tonight, nothing but upside for the president. And I think in a dead heat in Georgia, this could be really important. All right, Mariella and then Alan on this. Well, I think also another thing that people need to consider is the topics of the, of the debate. And I think President Trump is vulnerable on the topics that are going to be discussed, especially when we talk about race in America. That is something that the Trump campaign also want to talk because they don't like the record. Climate change is another thing, and that is something that is motivating the youth to go to vote. Uh, the response to the pandemic, those three topics are very uh, devastating to discuss with the president. He gets angry every time that people bring those topics. Uh, and the other topics that are going to be discussed are national security, uh, leadership, 
and America's families. So I think the topics are also going to be a factor in this debate. Ellen? Yeah, I, I, I agree. And I, I think Trump, I, I think actually Trump is going to be on the defensive. And the reason he's going to be on, and you know, the reason he, in part, the way he behaved the way he did in the first debate and kept interrupting and talking over Joe Biden was to avoid having to actually answer substantive questions about the issues, about issues like his handling of the pandemic, about climate change, about race relations. And to the extent that he actually has to answer those questions, I think he's going to be put on the defensive because we know that the majority of the American public disapprove of the way that he's been handling all of those issues. You know, so he has a choice. He can either behave the way he did the first time, interrupt, uh, talk over, and he can still do that even, you know, in the segments that are not muted. Uh, you know, or he can uh, engage in a uh, more rational discussion of the issues, in which case I think he's still on the defensive. So, you know, I, I don't see this helping him. People have had four years to watch Donald Trump and form an opinion about him. They're not going to change their minds uh, based on a 90-minute debate. Well, I mean, you, thank you, because I, I sort of ascribed that to you in talking to Kevin, but that's exactly what you're, you're saying, that if, if your model based on approval rating is an accurate one, that his approval rating doesn't change whether he's behaving well or behaving uh, no, poorly, I think it's uh, uh, acting out. Yeah, I, uh, I one think la- we're we're really short, really, really short on time. I want to know about muting. I personally, I think the debate commission has overstepped. I think these two candidates should be allowed to go at each other in any way they choose uh, to do it. Uh, and and I'm curious if anybody else shares that with me. I know how Trump abused that in the first debate, but I don't want the debate commission to be the one that monitors Donald Trump's behavior, and I'm a little put off by it. Anybody else agree with me on that, Kevin? I do think, and it troubles me, that in the president, the de- a debate between candidates for president of the United States, we have to somehow uh, manufacture rules that account for terrible behavior. I think if a candidate is going to misbehave, then that says all it needs to say about the candidate, and we shouldn't be trying to control yeah. them. As we run out of time, um, Mariella, you're a TV person. I mean, you can understand, I assume, the value of trying to get clear conversations. Nevertheless, what do you think? Oh, my goodness. You know, when I was watching the debate, <laughs> I wanted to Because <laughs> 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 I wanted to hear, you know, the, the, my point of view is this. The whole world is watching this. And uh, the standing of the United States, the, the image has been damaged. So I think a more decorum, even if it is forced, is necessary. All right. And Alan Abramowitz, you're very quick take. Look, people are going to say, oh, but we can't hear the issues discussed. Well, the issues in this race are do you think Donald Trump should have four more years or not? <laughs> okay. Right. I, real quick because we're out of time. Right. Thank you, Alan. Uh, That's the end. (laughs) We're out of time. I can't even take that. Uh, Sam is waving me off. Thank you all so much for the show. I'm Bill Niga. Take care. Stay healthy. Wear a mask. Go get a flu shot. We're very quickly getting out of the way for NPR News. Bye-bye, everybody.